take a look at it with me, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Here's how it begins. And as he passed by. And of course, you know that he is a reference to Yeshua, Jesus, as we refer to him. Uh, Yeshua, Jesus, was in Jerusalem, which is and has been for 3,000 years the uh, capital of Israel. And there he was in the temple precincts, which in and of itself, even before we go farther, is quite overwhelming. Here's the pre-existent one, he who has no beginning nor end, and yet he condescended, reducing himself so as to take on the same vehicle, a an enfleshed body that we're blessed with. It gets us from point A to point B. He entered a body, though he be God from before time, in order to extend himself to us. And in uh, the flesh, as the God-man, he's walking about Jerusalem, and he passes by, and the text says, he saw a man blind from birth. So this man had a congenital condition. He was born this way. The beginning of his life started with blindness, and it extended to the extent of his life even now. Can you imagine? This man never saw anything. He never saw anybody. In fact, he can't even see the special one who's there passing by and seeing him at the present time. Others saw this man but they didn't see him the same way the Lord did. They saw him to be, frankly, a package. Uh, friends would bring this package, I suppose, daily and deposit him in a heavily trafficked area around the temple, and there he would hold out his hand, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. He was living, in their mind, up to his full potential. What else could a blind beggar do but beg? And that was the sum total of his life, they thought, but not the Lord. He saw potential in this man, and specifically, it was the potential to bring great glory to Almighty God. And so while this is happening, verse 2 tells us his disciples, the Lord's disciples, they're not always mentioned, but they're always there. The Lord is always intent on grooming and teaching and training them because after his crucifixion, they would be the ones who perpetuate the gospel message so that you and I hear it down to this very day. And so his disciples asked him, Rabbi, that's how he was referred to. That's what he was. He was, a, he was a teacher. And the rabbis then and now had to have followers. And so the disciples, they were learners following Rabbi Jesus. And they said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man, pointing to the blind man, or his parents, that he should be born blind? And so their question about suffering, if you think about it, is really a statement about suffering. And the implied statement they're making about this subject is this. Suffering is due to sin. This man is suffering. Therefore, they conclude the source of it all is sin, either committed by his parents or by him. Is this true? Does sin lead to suffering? Well, the answer is yes, sort of. In truth, all suffering can be traced back to the first sin of the first ones of us, Adam and Eve, way back in Genesis. You can read about it in chapter 3 of that first book of the Bible. 
They sinned, Adam and Eve, and as a result, they really messed things up. And because of our connection to them, we have inherited their inclination to sin. The suffering due to sin has been perpetuated and continues on to this very day. And that's why the Bible can say, for all have sinned. I can't blame Adam and Eve for it all because I'm like them. I've inherited their nature. And so, yeah, surely there is a connection between sin and suffering. But the question is, is there a direct connection between someone's suffering and that one's particular sin? Well, the disciples surely thought so, but I don't. And I don't think you should think so either. Look, we recently went through Hurricane Harvey. And during that time, many, many of you, suffered great, great damage. In fact, some here suffered the total loss of your homes. But during that devastating time, I, my wife and I, our home was intact. We experienced no damage whatsoever. On the basis of that, am I to conclude that you, who were really victimized by the ravages of Hurricane Harvey, you are a greater sinner than I, because I didn't experience any of it. And if you lost only part of your belongings, not the totality of them, those who lost everything, are they even greater sinners than you? I want to tell you, the disciples, their line of thinking, would say, yes, you suffered loss because you have sinned, you say. And what they would do is they would heap upon the... Uh, the pain you're already experiencing, they would, heal, they would heap guilt and shame upon it, and it would add to your travail. You see, they would come to this conclusion, all suffering and pain is due to sin. Some here, even as we speak, have been diagnosed with cancer or heart disease or diabetes or some such affliction. Are we to conclude that you are sick because you have sinned? Are we right to conclude that your specific sin, whatever it may be, is what accounts for your specific illness? I'm telling you, that's how the Lord's disciples were thinking. They would say, yes, you're in the sorry situation you're in because you have sinned. And they would come up with a rather simple explanation for the problem of, of suffering and pain in the world. It's this, you suffer because you sin. By the way, that was the very thinking of Job's so-called friends. This poor man lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his health, and his friends, his counselors, in essence, said to him, Job, you know what? If you ceased doing bad things, you would avoid the experience of these bad things. Job, confess your sin before God. Get right with him, and you will be granted immunity from tragedies such as this. Job, obviously, the explanation for the problem of suffering and pain, which you are experiencing, is simple. You are bad, and therefore bad things have come your way. Folks, it's called the doctrine or teaching of retributive justice. It's actually foisted upon us by some. The doctrine of retributive justice, meaning God is getting retribution against you when you do bad stuff. If you want God to send good things your way, then do good things. 
But you ought to expect God to send bad things your way if you do bad things. It's the doctrine of retributive justice. And amongst other things, it leaves out the grace of God and the mercy of God. It leaves out the fact that God does not give us what we deserve. God responds to us by grace and mercy. Well, anyway, that's the doctrine of retributive justice. And it very simply says, do good and you, you will experience good things. Do bad and you will experience bad things. Quite simple. Here we resolve the problem of evil. However... Though some suffering is indeed the direct result of the sinful decisions we make, that can't be said of all of the things we suffer with and experience. And so a truth oversimplified actually becomes a lie that can wound people. So I think the disciples' conclusion is a very simplistic one. Well, what are then other explanations that makes sense, perhaps, for the problem of sin and suffering in a world created by a good God. I want to offer to you some of the things folks have suggested, an explanation for pain and suffering. Here's one. Tell me if you like any of these. Um, God doesn't really exist. It's good that you people get together and, you know, and have your religious gatherings And, you know, if you feel good about the illusion of a real God, okay, that makes you happy, but there is none. And the fact that there is no God explains the problem of evil and suffering in the world because what's happening is that everything is just whimsical and randomized. There is no controlling entity. There is no God of order. There's no sovereignty No force controlling events. They just happen accidentally. You're subject to accidents and whimsy and the randomness of the cosmos. And sometimes the bad stuff in it simply lands on you. There is no God. And that is a solution to the problem of evil. Do you like that one? Okay, just checking. All right, let's move on. Here's another suggestion. No, 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 no. There is God. In fact, there's a multiplicity of gods. There's not just one God. There are many. And here's the deal. Some of those gods who exist are good. Others are bad. And they sort of um, wrestle with one another. And on certain days, the bad gods win over the good gods, and that's why bad things come our way. Unpredictably, unexpectedly, on certain days, the good gods sleep, the bad gods have full sway, and therefore, the burdens of life befall us at that time. Do you like that idea? You don't like that one? Okay, good. Hang in there. There's some others. How about this one? Here's a third approach. No, no. There is only one God. He exists. There aren't a multiplicity of gods. There's only one. But the God who exists doesn't care. He's transcendent. He is far removed from your plight. Though he may have created you, after having created you, he moved on. He made you, he gave you a little boot in the behind, and he said, lots of luck. 
Maybe he wished you well, but he can't bring your well-being into being because he doesn't really care. He's off somewhere. I don't know, maybe on another planet. So this preserves the monotheistic position. There is only one God, but the character of that God is that he is at best indifferent to your plight. Do you like that one? Okay, so far you're answering correctly. I'm a little nervous here, but okay, so far so good. Then how about this explanation for the problem of evil? There is a God, only one of them. And he is very caring and compassionate, but he's also very limited. He's in heaven, right? That's where we th think God uh, lives. And his arms are too short to extend themselves from heaven to our rough situation here on earth. And so though he observes what we're going through and aches with us because he has a heart of compassion, he weeps with us because he can't do anything about it. He's not sovereign. He's not in control. He can only observe and wish that he could intervene to relieve our suffering, but he cannot. Do you like that one? Okay, good. Well, there's a man who has embraced that very alternative to the problem of suffering. His name is Harold Kushner. He's a rabbi. Perhaps you know of him. Rabbi Harold Kushner, very bright and intelligent man. By the way, um, being intelligent is different than being wise, right? I didn't say he's wise. I just said he's intelligent. Well, here's what happened. He had a son who was afflicted with a very rare disease called progeria, or premature aging. Uh, so for this young boy, his bones would become prematurely rigid. Joints would be afflicted with great pain. He was just a young boy, but he had the gait of an, a person of advanced age. I sympathize with the rabbis. He stood by to watch the throes of this debilitating disease snuff out the life of his young boy. And yes, the disease ultimately claimed his wife. The rabbi, I think leading not with his head, but with his broken heart, had to explain all this. You see, the problem of pain. If there is a good God, how does he square? The rabbi, how does he square this? with this horrific tragedy that befell his son. And so he embraced the alternative I just shared with you. There is one God. He remained, as a rabbi, monotheistic. And he's very caring, and he aches when we ache. But he's limited, and he couldn't have done a thing about it. And the rabbi said, I could no longer conceive of a God. I could no longer worship a God who stood there able to intervene and yet did not. Therefore, he said, God is disabled. He has kind intentions, but no strength, no power to extend himself from the heavenlies to absolve the travail of my young boy who died from progeria. I sympathize with the rabbi, but I can't embrace his theology. I don't think it flows from Scripture, but I found something that does flow from Scripture. I'll share it with you. It has to do with this problem of evil. God gave a response to someone named Habakkuk. In Hebrew, we say Habakkuk. Habakkuk. It means in Hebrew to embrace. But Habakkuk embraced God in an unusual way, not with praise, but with complaint. Habakkuk complained to God. He essentially said to God, what is going on? Why do you allow evil and evildoers? 
And he asked the question we are all prone to ask. It's just part and parcel of human nature. When terrible things came, he said to God, why? And God gave an answer. I'll read it to you. It's in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. It's simple. God said, look among the nations. Observe, be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. That's the answer God gave to Habakkuk with regard to the question, why is this happening? Why do bad things happen? And God said, Habakkuk, I am incomprehensible. Your finite mind cannot receive what I would give you if you could receive it. I'm doing something. Even through the pain and suffering you experience, you would not believe. Even if I were to explain it, you see Habakkuk labored under the misconception if God simply answered the why question, Habakkuk's pain would go away. No, no, an explanation won't help us for a few reasons. One, we can't understand what an infinite God who dwells in eternal places, is really up to. And so God required of Habakkuk, live by faith. Live by confidence in me. I cannot give you an explanation. You know what Habakkuk needed in the midst of his suffering? Not an explanation appealing to his head. He needed a fresh revelation of God having impact on his heart. That's what we all need in the midst of pain and suffering. We cry out to God the same thing. Why, God, if only you would explain this to me, I'll enjoy it. That's not true. Instead, we should be crying out, Oh, God, in the midst of this pain and suffering, please prove yourself to be present, caring, able, with me, even in my pain. Oh, God, I don't wish for an explanation. I can't receive it this side of eternity. Instead, give me a fresh revelation. Job got one. There are 42 chapters in that book, if you've never read it. And in 42 chapters, I have not found one place where God explained to Job why all that happened to him happened to him. And yet, without an explanation, when you get to the final chapter of Job, Job says this. It's Job 42, verse 5. He said, I have heard of you. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. In the midst of it all, Job came into an intimate encounter with Almighty God he did not have prior to all of this affliction. God never explained to him what he was up to, but God gave Job in the, Job in the midst of his pain a fresh revelation and vision of himself and folks when we suffer. That's what we need. Just as the Lord Jesus passed by the man seated begging blindly somewhere in the precincts of the temple, just as he was passing by, so too he passes by us and he has eyes to see us. We're not lost in our pain in the crowd. He knows and he knows we are needy, and he knows we are his, and we need to be persuaded of it right at the point of pain. Listen, listen to this. It's written by Paul. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
Paul's argument, it's kind of a Hebraism, we Jews do this, he argued from the greater to the lesser. If the greater is true, then the lesser most certainly is. If God did not withhold his only begotten son, that's the greater. Now here's the argument to the lesser. Now how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, in the midst of our pain, suffering, and loss, we must not rush to the conclusion that we've been abandoned by God and that he's punishing us for our sin. Uh, frankly, the opposite is true. He did who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for you, how will he not also, even in the midst of your pain, freely give all things we need to get through it and to be sustained? Now, the disciples didn't get it. They had this simplistic notion of divine retribution, and so they had to come to the conclusion, the man is blind, someone sinned. They asked the Lord, who did? Is it his parents or is it him? And now the Lord gives an answer in verse 3. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so the Lord tells his disciples that the man's blindness is not traceable to a specific sin at all. It is in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. If you are a Christian, you may suffer. Sometimes that which you suffer is directly attributable to your sin, yes. But at other times, your suffering is in order that the works of God might be displayed in you. You are a Christian. You were not made in vain, nor is your suffering in vain. You were made for God's glory. And your suffering, whether we like it or not, is a vehicle sometimes permitted by God to bring about his glory. How, however, how could God be glorified when I hurt so much, when I have suffered such loss, when I'm experiencing such pain? How in the world could God be glorified in all of that? Well, let me suggest this. Do you know what happens when in the midst of your pain and loss, you persist in following Jesus? Do you know what happens when in the midst of all that which you are experiencing, something that has suddenly come upon you, taken you by surprise, loss of a loved one, terrible medical diagnosis, natural disaster? Do you know what happens when even when experiencing those things, you insist on praising God, walking with him, even though you may be crying out to him? I'll tell you what happens. You smack Satan right in the face. It's like a knockout punch. Why? Because Satan is out to prove that God's love is not enough to constrain us to follow him. It has to be God's deliverance of blessings and benefits. And so the only reason, Satan would say, the only reason we follow this Jesus is because of the benefits that accrue to our account when we do. But, Satan would say, withhold your blessing from those people and they will curse you to your face. And when instead we bless God, not curse him, it's like a knockout punch to Satan. And that's how God is glorified even in the midst of our suffering. And that's why Job said, though he slay me, 
I will hope in him. Boom! That's like an uppercut right in Satan's jaw. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Part B of what Job said is, nevertheless, I will argue my complaint before him. What else is a hurting child of God to do in the midst of a painful experience but to cry out? That's permissible and legitimate. You don't have to put on a happy face. But crying out to God is the very opposite of running away from God. When you cry out to God, who are you addressing your remarks to? And it's like a knockout punch to Satan. When in the midst of your pain you run to God, even with complaint and questions, that indicates to Satan, I know God is there. He's the highest authority. I run to him for answers and for help and for support and for healing and for comfort. And that's how God can be glorified even in the midst of our pain. Someone, I told you the rabbi, I think I told you, Rabbi Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was a bestseller. Uh, to provide a biblical response to the rabbi's book, a man named Warren Wearsby wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to, not good people, because there aren't any, When Bad Things Happen to God's People. I recommend the book to you by Warren Wearsby on this subject. In the book, Wearsby said, Some suffering is the sad consequences of our own disobedience, but some suffering is simply for the glory of God to refute Satan's charge that we obey God only to escape the trials and enjoy the blessings. There is often something bigger than ourselves involved in the trials that we are called to endure. And there's something else about suffering and pain. I don't like it. Uh, my guess is you don't either. But I know suffering and pain serves this good purpose. Let me illustrate with a story. There was a young boy, eight, wanting a puppy. His father took him to a pet store to get one. They went in and the manager showed the dad and young boy the array of puppies he had. Most were caged together, but one was set off from the rest. This puppy was alone in the cage. And the boy was quite interested, interestingly, in that puppy and asked the store manager why he was set apart, isolated from the others. The store manager said, well, as you can see, the puppy was born with a crippled leg. He cannot walk. He cannot run. Soon we'll be putting that puppy to sleep. It really affected this young boy who then entered in a, into a private conversation with his dad for a minute or two. And then the dad came to the store manager and said to him, my son would like that puppy, the crippled puppy. Well, the store manager was amazed. He didn't understand this. And he said to the young boy, why do you want this one? He'll never be able to run with you and play with you. Without a, a word, the young boy lifted up uh, his pant leg, his pants on his right leg, and he re revealed to him a brace. And the young boy said, I want that one because I know what he's going through. This is exactly what Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by Christ. When you and I casually say to God, oh God, please use me. Have you prayed something like that? Well, then get ready. Because in order to be useful to God, things have to take place. And that God sometimes trains us up for ministry in the school of hard knocks. Through affliction and pain and loss and suffering. Why? So that when we have a chance to minister to someone similarly situated, we won't preach at them. We won't say something inappropriate. We won't say, you're a sinner, that's why you're a sufferer. We'll figuratively speaking put our arm around them. We'll look them into their tear-filled eyes and we'll be able to say as they pour out their heart, we'll be able to say, I know what you are going through. And they will call your bluff and they will say, how do you know? And you will say, me too. I too struggle in that area. I too have lost a loved one. I too am confronted with cancer. Whatever it may be. Now, folks, I think one of the reasons why you and I have such difficulty reconciling our pain with the promises of God is simple. It's because I think we misunderstand the promises of God. Did you know he never promised us a pain-free existence? You only get that if you watch certain TV preachers. But you don't get it from the Bible. God never promised a pain-free existence. He never promised immunity from the pain caused by natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey. God never promised that. He never promised immunity from a very burdensome medical diagnoses. He never promised immunity from the pain of the loss of a loved one. No, no. God never promised in the Bible that we would, would not suffer, suffer. In fact, if you're interested in the promises of God, I'll read you one where he promises we will suffer. It's in John chapter 16. We may get there one day. I don't know. John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Shalom. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. That's a promise of Almighty God. In the world you will have tribulation. So one of the reasons we have such a difficult time when we as Christians heard is that we think God has promised otherwise, but he did not. No, no, he never did. But though God has never promised that we would not suffer, he did promise that we would never suffer alone. And he did promise that we would never suffer for no good reason. There's no such thing any longer for the Christian as an accident, an unfortunate turn of events, the cruel winds of fate. That's not true. When you're redeemed and possessed, purchased by the blood of the Lamb, you are His. He orchestrates everything. No, we don't suffer for no good reason. Our Father is up to something good in it. Now, I know the notion that God would make use of our own suffering and loss and pain for good. I know that notion is very hard to accept, but it's true. It's true. The quintessential, quintessential example of undeserved suffering was God's own Son. 
That proves to me that suffering is not inconsistent with sonship or daughtership. And my, how God used the suffering of his own son for good. Where would you be? But that Jesus, the Lamb of God, suffered for us. Hmm. And if you're honest, even in the midst of your pain, if you could do this, I think you'll have to admit you do better in times of affliction than in times of prosperity. Things happen to you and me when we hurt. Things that don't happen otherwise. In fact, one as great, flawed, but great. As Martin Luther once said, affliction is the best book in my library. Here was one of the most learned theologians of his day. And Luther said, affliction is the best book in my library. Uh, whether we like it or not, folks, you and I as disciples, learners, followers of the great rabbi Jesus, we learn in Bible study class and all the rest, but there are certain life lessons we can only learn in the crucible of pain and suffering. And what Luther said was said by one even greater than him, and earlier on, David HaMelech, we call him. David, the great king, in the songbook of Israel, Psalm 119, verse 75, David said, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. If we're honest, we do better in times of affliction than at other times. What does it force you to do? It forces you to cry out to God. You run to him. You pray to him more than just grace before meals. You're hurting. You have to talk to someone. And you run to his word and you listen to it. It's like speaking to you because you're wounded and empty and you need healing and comfort. And you run to other believers because you're desperate for some help. You need someone to talk to you, to listen to you, to hug you and to pray for you. And in times of affliction, things like, oh, I didn't hear my favorite song today. It's too cold. It's too hot. Whatever, that person is not dressed appropriately. I don't like that preacher. Those things don't matter. You're gasping for the very next breath when you're hurting. And it strips you of all subsidiary priorities. Your priority is, oh, God, please sustain me. Get me through this time. And I'm telling you, that would not be happening but for the affliction. Folks, I know, I know you and I may not like this about God, but it's true. He's simply more interested in the development of our character than he is in our comfort. He's more interested in our growing holiness than that we be happy. I'll tell you something else that God is interested in. He's interested in conjuring up a desire in our lives to cling to him for blessing, just like Yaakov or Jacob in Genesis, who said, I will not let you go until you bless me. How could you form such a tight and tenacious grasp on Almighty God? You hurt and have no other place to go. I will not let you go until you bless me. And the greatest cure for our insatiable appetite to be pridefully independent of God is pain. It strips us of the mirage of independence and autonomy. And we run to God and say, I don't even know how I'm going to get out of bed today. I don't know how I'm going to function. And I don't even know how I'm going to find a reason to go on. Oh, God, I need you.
pain ushered you into his presence, not comfort. And let me offer this final thought. I think a helpful way to resolve our confusion about painful circumstances, why do bad things happen to God's people, I think a solution to it or a good approach to it is to try to see things from God's perspective. I'll tell you briefly what I mean. God is an eternal being. He dwells in an eternal atmosphere, and therefore he has an eternal perspective. And from his eternal perspective, he is willing to use even the painful events of this passing world to better prepare us for eternity with him. Paul discovered this truth and said something about it in Romans 8.18. This is what Paul said. He said, I consider, consider, that's an intellectual activity. Don't wait for your emotions to prevail. Let your thoughts prevail. Think about this. Reflect on it. It's the truth. Paul said, I'm doing that. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he acknowledged them as being normal, not unusual, not exceptional, even for one, a great apostle such as himself. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this is what he said, this present time, meaning it's distinguished from a latter time. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, here's what he said, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He said, take the measure of your pain. It seems, if you could quantify it, overwhelming and exceeding its bounds. As great is the quantification of your pain, it's not even worthy to be compared to the quantity of glory which will be your experience, not for a while, but for eternity. And so my fellow sufferers for Jesus Christ, you and I need to know our suffering is not without purpose and our suffering is not without end. All we have to do is endure it until Jesus comes to get us or we go for him. It's not that much longer. Lord Jesus, we don't have your eternal perspective we live within the confines of this space-time dimension. We're quite invested in it. I pray you would increase our investment in the life to come, for that one is of greater magnitude and duration. Oh, God, thank you for your ministrations to us, for your involvement in us. No, you're not this disinterested, transcendent deity who is so far removed you don't know and care. Oh, no. You're intimately acquainted with us and what afflicts us and burdens us. And you're with us in the pain. We're never alone. And you use it for good as you reckon it. Lord, sometimes we don't like this about you, but we accept it. You never ask us for permission. As ultimate authority figure, as heavenly father, you do things according to the counsel of your own will. Many times we don't understand nor approve. 
But oh God, like Job, Habakkuk, we don't really need an explanation. We need a fresh revelation of your sovereignty and of your goodness. And so in the midst of our pain, help us to ask and properly answer these two questions. But oh God, even in my pain, are you not sovereign? And oh God, even in my pain, are you not good? And living Savior, if we're not coming up with the right answer, would you bring us back to the cross and your resurrection from it? For the resurrection, your victory over death, proves to us you are sovereign and proves to us you are good. You suffered, you died, you rose up from death for us. And if you paid the ultimate price, how will you not also with that price freely give us all things, even sustenance, and hope, and healing, and a reason to go on. So I pray for the suffering brothers and sisters who managed to drag themselves into this place tonight. Thank you that they've done so. They just smacked Satan in the face, and they told him, though I hurt, I worship. Though I hurt, I praise. And though I hurt, I run to none other temple except that of Jesus Christ. Oh, God in heaven, I pray that you would help us to have your perspective on the throes of life, which you promise we will experience for a good purpose. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being trustworthy and for not permitting anything to come our way we're not able to deal with in your strength. We love you, Lord Jesus. We look forward to seeing you face to face. And then and only then will we get the explanation we so sorely request. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.